0: If you haven't been with us for the last several weeks, we've been in a series called Then Sings My Soul. And what we've been doing is looking at the theological truths found in many of our old hymns. And the purpose behind this is not to uh, uh, downplay any of the newer songs that we sing. The Bible says sing a new song unto the Lord. But we shouldn't do that at the expense of, of ridding ourselves of theological songs that we've sang for years and years That are full of theological truths that we need to know. And many of the theological truths that most Christians, and especially in Baptist churches, know learn through the hymns that they would sing. As a matter of fact, that's how hymns got their start. Preachers and musicians would get together and put theological truths to music in order to teach theological truths to people. And so that's how a lot of these got started. And this morning, we're going to look at uh, probably the most famous children's hymn, or hymn, not hymn, null, the f- most famous children's hymn uh, that's ever been written. We got to hear a little bit of it a while ago uh, when Gabby uh, sang that for us Jesus Loves Me. Now, <coughs> we're going to talk a lot about this hymn. And I, it was really interesting as I was kind of praying through which hymn to go through next and all that. I just kept coming back to this. Particular hymn, and I remember thinking, is it really that theological deep? I mean, it's pretty simple. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Uh, But in that statement and in the verses, there are some very rich theological truths that we we need to remember, uh, maybe learn, or we all definitely uh, need to understand. And so we're going to be looking at that in just a little bit. Now, when I was uh, just out of high school, I uh, went to East Central, and right after we got there, there were several of us from my hometown uh, that, that went to college there. And uh, right after we moved to East Central, I went to the BSU, and we were there. Uh, it was one of the few times that I actually went to the BSU, but we were there, and we were in a kind of a, a Bible study group. And this leader, who was a, probably a junior or senior in college, asked this theological question to our group. Now, this really good friend of mine who just happened to be my pastor's daughter, she answered the question and, and she answered it correctly. But the leader come back to her and said, Why? So he asked a question, she gives the answer, and then he follows up with, Why? Why is that true? And I never will forget her response. Her response was this. My daddy told me so. I'll never forget that. And it's ingrained in my mind that she would say, My daddy told me so. Now, I want you to know that's actually a little bit of a fear. I have pastor and as a father, and also uh, to my children, but also as a pastor to you. That I would teach truth to you without giving you the biblical understanding, and then when someone asks you why that is, for my kids, they would say, Because my daddy said so. Although it'd be great to know that they actually listened to me for once. Um, or even if you're just a church member, for you to say, well, because my pastor said so. Now, again, that'd be nice to know you actually listened uh, to something I said, but, but I'm not the authority. And, and that's something that that, the, that friend of mine had to learn really quick, that your dad or your pastor, as great as they are, they're not the authority. The Bible is the authority, And so when someone asks you a truth, and you give them the answer, and they say why, you need to be able to say, because the Bible said so. Well, where does it say that? And then you need to be able to follow up and tell them where the Bible says whatever answer uh, you're giving them. And so this morning, we're going to look at this hymn that actually uses that exact statement, the Bible tells me so. Okay. And so we're going to look at that uh, this morning. Years ago... There was a 92-year-old retired pastor who was asked to come to a church in Atlanta. And the pastor asked him to come and to share with the church the greatest uh, truth that he learned or the greatest encouragement to him through the many ups and downs in the years of ministry that he had spent. And so this 92-year-old man showed up at the church, and when it was his turn to speak, he gets up, and he's having a hard time moving. He's slow getting from the chair over to the podium, and he gets up to the podium, He doesn't have a paper or anything in his hand, and he says this. This was his statement. When I was asked to come here today and talk to you, your preacher asked me to tell you what was the greatest lesson I ever learned in my 50-odd years of pastoring. I thought about it for a few days and boiled it down to just one thing that made the most difference in my life and sustained me through all my trials. The one thing that would comfort me was this. Jesus loves me, this I know For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Now, Karl Barth, who was a, a German theologian visited the United States and was at a seminary and was asked the same question. And his response was simply, What the single most important thing that you've ever learned In your ministry as a theologian, he responded, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, both of those men, both true stories, by the way, share something with the group that's listening to them from a song, but they don't share a scripture. Why? I mean, there's lots of scriptures they could have shared. Most people, if you ask them what the things they learned the most, they're going to share a scripture with you. But both of these theologians, one pastor for over 50 years, one uh, very famous German theologian, answer with the song uh, lyrics from a song, uh, mainly a children's song. Why do they do that and not a scripture? I think it's because those words sum up the central affirmation of the Christian faith. And I believe that those words are the cornerstone to the nature of God, that God loves us and his love is found in Jesus. And I know that because the Bible tells me that no matter what else goes on in life, no matter what else happens in life, no matter what's going on in my life, this I know Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me he does And that's why I think that they used those words. So we're going to look at this hymn this morning and see how real deep it is. To do that, we're going to do the same thing we've done throughout. We're going to look a little bit at the history and the origin of the song, and then we're going to talk about the theological truths that you'll find (coughs) within it. And so uh, if you go to the military cemetery at West Point in New York, You'll find an interesting grave there for two sisters, and their names were Anna and Susan Warner, and they lived in a Revolutionary War-era home on Constitution Island, directly across from West Point. And for about 40 years, these two sisters would spend time coming over to West Point and teaching Bible classes to the cadets. And the reason why their graves are, are interesting, if you were to go there, is because they are the only two civilians buried in West Point. The only two civilians. And not only are they buried there, they were given full military honors at their burial. Because they dedicated their lives for over 40 years of teaching Bible, the Bible to cadets at West Point. And they were very renowned and well-known Doing so, but not only did they do that for 40 years, they were sisters and they needed to help contribute when they were younger uh, to their family income, and so they began to write both poems and stories for publication. Their parallel literary, literary careers uh, resulted in 106 publications, and 18 of those were co-authored that they did them together. Now, you may not know their wor- or their, their names, but you've probably heard of some of their works, like they wrote Robin Caruso's Farmyard. They also wrote uh, The Wide, Wide World, and they wrote another one called Say and Seal that was a bestseller second only to Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now, it was in that book, Say and Seal, that they co-authored together that there's a little boy, and his name is Johnny Fox, and he's dying. He's on his deathbed. And Johnny Fox's Sunday school teacher, his name was John Linden, comes to his house and tries to comfort this little boy who's dying by taking him in his arms rocking him, and making up this little, little song. And it very simply said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. When hymn writer William Bradbury read that book and saw that line, he got with Anna and Susan, who discovered that they had taken that little line and had written a seven-verse poem out of it. And William Bradbury, who if you look in our hymnal, that's who he's written as the as in the bottom there, he took their poem and he put it to music, and the hymn, Jesus Loves Me, was born. And from that day until today, it has probably become the most well-known children's Him in the entire world. It has been translated into multiple different languages. As a matter of fact, not only has it been translated into multiple different languages, many other religions have taken it and changed it and tried to fit it. Matter of fact, there's a song called "Buddha Loves Me." (coughs) This I know for the Dharma tells me so. The problem with that is, if you read the Dharma, it doesn't say anything about Buddha loving them anywhere. But the Bible does tell us that Jesus loves us. And so it became very popular. And so this song ha- has been written and published and been sang for years and years. And, and it's really probably even in our culture today, it's it's one of the top three hymns that people know. I would say most people in our culture know Amazing Grace. Most people know, probably second most common. That it just people in general would know is probably Silent Night from Christmas. And then Jesus Loves Me would be the third. Because every church I know of sings this song at VBS and when children growing up and they sing this. The problem is when I became a music minister, we didn't sing it very much. And I noticed we weren't singing very much, and so I made it a point to start putting Jesus Loves Me back into the music. Because it's not just for kids, it's for adults, and it has some incredible theological truths found within it. And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. And so, is that true? Does Jesus love me? And if so, does the Bible really tell me he does? Now, now we haven't read just yet, but I want you to read with me in Ephesians chapter 3. If you have your Bible, stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Because the words, Jesus loves me, that was found in this book written by uh, Susan and Anna uh, Warner... They they wrote that those words based off the text found in Ephesians chapter 3 starting in verse 14 and we're going to read down through verse 21 this morning. Listen to what the word of God says. Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, says this in verse 14 For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, here's the key, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, And the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, today I pray that you'd bless the reading of your... And now as we examine it for a few moments this morning, I pray that I would decrease and your spirit living in me would increase and the words would be shared today would be your words and not mine. You would find, they would find the place you have for them in the hearts and lives of your people and that we would respond the way you lead us to respond is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So they, they, they understood the Bible. As I said, Susan and Anna Warner taught the Bible to the cadets at West Point. So they knew what the Bible said, and they found a way to to put their thoughts from Scripture into many of their writings. And in the writing, say and seal, they put it in by the use of this song that a Sunday school teacher was singing to this dying little boy to give comfort to him in this book. And they used a text from the book of Ephesians as the, the parameters, if you will, for that idea, because that text in Ephesians tells us very much, matter of fact, listen to it again in verse 18, that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes understanding. The idea is that people should know how much Jesus loves them. Now, is that the only place in Scripture it talks about? Like I stated, I believe that the opening words, Jesus loves me, is the central affirmation of our Christian faith. But is that true? Does Jesus love me, and does the Bible really tell me so? Well, yes, it does. It not only tells me that here in Ephesians chapter 3, but listen to these three verses as well. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul said this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, it says this, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved me. Us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And then Jesus' words himself in John chapter 15, verse 9, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love, or stay in my love. So is it true, does Jesus love me? Yes. How do I know he loves me? The Bi- <laughs> There you go, Chuck. Cassandra. The Bible tells me he does, right? And so we definitely, that's definitely true. Jesus does love us, and the Bible does tell us that. And since that's true, there are some very deep theological implications or ramifications of that. Now, there's more than what I'm going to give you this morning, but I think our hymn is... In Jesus loves me. hymn number three, four, sums up four really good ones. Okay, and I want to give them to you. The first theological emphasis: because Jesus loves me, we know that that according to verse one of chapter, or, uh, sorry, of Jesus loves me is that little children belong to Him. Now that doesn't sound like a whole lot, but but listen to it real quick. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. Now, why is that important? Because sometimes, like in the book, say in Seal with the young boy named Johnny who was dying, sometimes little children die. Sometimes it happens, and it's painful. How do you encourage someone who's lost a little child? Well, one of the ways that I've done that personally is by encouraging them that they know that God has taken care of their child in Jesus. But do you know that I had a co-minister one time tell me that the Bible does not say beyond a shadow of a doubt that if a little child dies, they go to heaven? Now, I agreed with one thing. There is not a Bible verse that says little children go to heaven when they die verbatim but there are a lot of scriptures that talk about that idea one of them's in the old testament when david's son died if you remember that he was in mourning and then his son died and he got up and cleaned himself off and people were like what are you doing and he said i can't he can't come back to me but i will one day go to to be with him but probably one of the greatest verses that talk about that, in my opinion, is Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 19, verse 14, when he says this, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Now, in other places, he, he goes right in and tells us that in order to become one of his children, one of his followers, one of his who's saved, you have to become like a little child. Now, why would he emphasize that if he doesn't care for little children? Why, why would God, who is loving, because the Bible tells me he does, why would he reject a little child who dies as a little child? That that to me makes no sense for scripture because he says here, "Do not forbid the little children to come to me. Let them come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven." Or in other translations that say, "For the kingdom of heaven is made up of such." Now that that means two very deep things for us. Number one, I do believe that that means that little children are wanted by Jesus and the kingdom is made up of lots of little children. I think of all the time the babies that are aborted in our country. If the Bible says that they are alive from conception, which the Bible does say, and then they are aborted, means they're killed, where do they go? They go back to him and so that's what this tells us and so the kingdom is made up of such and little children are wanted by him but it also reminds us of this all of us have to become like little children in order to be truly saved see that's what jesus said in matthew 18 and in luke 18 in both places he told his disciples unless you become as a little child you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven You have to become like a child. And that's why he says, that's why they wrote in this, little ones to him belong. That is both true for a sick little boy or girl who dies, unfortunately, but it's also true that we are little ones to him and we belong to him. Now, the second thing that's true from verse one in that is the second statement is not only do little children belong to him, but he says this, they are weak, but he is strong. Now, that's not just about little kids. That's also about us. And what that really teaches us is that salvation, him holding us has always been about his strength, not dependent on the strength of the child or the strength of his children, us. They are weak, but he is strong. Now, the idea of weakness is very evident in the idea of the words little ones little ones don't have much strength i mean i sit and i'll play with my my kids they like to arm wrestle and things like that and you know and they're you 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 know how you do that and you just let and they're just with all their strength they're and they're growling and they're just giving you everything they got and they're like dad try and you're like okay Uh, Little kids do not have strength. They don't. But their salvation as a child isn't dependent upon their strength. It's always been dependent on God's strength. And the same is true for you and I. And that's something that we need to remember as adults. That our salvation is not dependent upon how hard we hold on to it. It's not dependent on how much we can do for it. Because... We have no strength when it comes to our salvation. Now, is that not a very theological truth found within Scripture? Doesn't the Bible teach us that it is by grace of God that you've been saved through faith, not by works? Lest any man should boast. It's not about how hard you strive for salvation. It's about God's strength and what he can do in you and for you and through you that you could never do on your own, no matter how hard you try. And that's what this song talks about. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. You and I, when it comes to salvation, we're weak. There's nothing you and I can do to earn salvation. You and I can never be good enough to be saved. Never be good enough to be saved. All we can do is accept God's gracious gift of Jesus in our life and let the Holy Spirit come in and begin to change us from the inside out. That is a work of God. It's not about what you do. It's about what God did. So you can join all the churches you want to join. You can go through the baptismal waters all you want to. You can pray as many prayers as you want to. You can sing as many songs as you want to. You can give as much money as you want to. You can hope your good outweighs your bad as much as you want to, but none of it is strong enough for your salvation. Your salvation is only as strong as your Savior, and that's Jesus. Matter of fact, that's what Jesus tells us in John chapter 10. He tells us that we're held in God's hand, not by our strength but by God's strength and that no one is stronger than him and no one is able to snatch us out. Of God's hand and so right there in that very first verse we learned some pretty incredible Theological truths not just about little children, but about us We have to become like little children in order to be saved and our salvation isn't based off what we bring to the party It's about what Jesus did for us on the cross of Calvary because of his love and all we can do is respond in repentance and faith and accept that free gift of salvation and so we understand that that little children belong to him we belong to him as his little children salvation is by a string and then there's two more the second one or the third one is found actually in verse two and that's that his death opens heaven's gates look at verse two jesus loves me he who died heaven's gates to open wide he will wash away my sin let his little child come in now i want you to think about that again He who died, heaven's gates to open wide. Now, in Scripture, a gate is is something that's describing a defensive measure. A gate wasn't so much about keeping people from getting out. It was there to keep people from getting in. Now, that's important for us to understand. Because when you read in Scripture where it says, And the gates of hell shall not prevail Against the church. Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates are not an offensive weapon. That is not saying that the gates of hell will over open up and overcome you as a church. No, what that actually is saying to us is we can storm the gates of hell and take the gospel to people that can save them, and the gates of hell cannot keep us out. That's what that means. You see, gates were a defensive measure kept to keep people from coming in and when you and i have the gospel we can storm the gates of hell and hell has no authority over the gospel that's how come you can take the gospel to the deepest darkest parts of the world you can take the gospel to the most sinful person in the world and if god is in it and god is moving they will respond to the gospel and they'll be saved because hell has no authority over the gospel but in this text it's talking about jesus dying to open heaven's gates Now that that's important for us to know heaven had gates to keep people out As a matter of fact the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation who they are to keep out anything that defiles according to Revelation 21 there will by no means enter into it talking about the gate in heaven that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie but only those whose names are found in the lamb's book of life And so heaven's gates are closed to anyone and everyone except those whose names are found in the Lamb's book of life. And those gates have to be opened by someone, and you and I can't open them. Only Jesus can open them, and the only way he could open them was through his death. Because his death is what caused the blood to be shed that cleanses us from our sin and enables us to stand in the very presence of God. You and I have no standing before God in his presence on our own merits. If you read in the book of Revelation, those of you who have been going through Revelation with us, you you should really pick up on this because we talked about it a lot, especially when we were depicting the throne and the people standing before the throne dressed in white. You remember? And the only way to be dressed in white was to have your sin washed white as snow. What can do that? Only the blood of Jesus. By the way, that's another hymn that we don't sing much anymore, but it's very true. That is actually pretty much a direct quote from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 12, that tells us that Jesus' blood cleanses us and washes us clean of our sin. There are other verses as well that talk about it. I read one of them a while ago in Revelation chapter 1, who said Jesus loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And our blood, our, that blood that was shed is what enables those gates to be open and allows us to come in. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Isn't it what Jesus said in John chapter 10 when, in verse 9 when he says, I am the gate? i am the gate only you come into heaven through me he is the only way in through the gate so he who died heaven's gates to open wide and then listen to that last part he will wash away my sin and let his little child come in if he didn't wash our sin away you and i could never go to heaven That's why it's so scary to hear people say it doesn't matter what road you take as long as you're sincere. Because if that person can be as sincere as they want, but if Jesus didn't wash away their sin, they can't enter into heaven. It's also scary to hear people say, well, you know, if my good works outweigh my bad works when I get to the judgment, then I'll be allowed in. It's not about your works. Because even your good works are stained with sin. And sin can't be in his presence. And the only way around that is to be washed clean by his blood. So he who died to open heaven gates that's opened through the washing of his blood allows his children to come in. That's what this second verse teaches us. And then the third one, or the last one that we're going to look at. No, by the way, why did he do that? Why'd he die to open heaven's gates to wash you clean from blood to allow you in? Why did he do that? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. It's not because you earned it or deserve it. We don't. It's because he loves us. The last thing is found in verses 3 and 4 and they go together. But it's that his loving presence never leaves us. Now, It is said that, uh, and the story goes, that verses 3 and 4 were actually written by Anna Warner, who had visited in real life, not in a book, but in a real life, had visited a young cadet from West Point that was on his deathbed. And and she, after that visit and talking with him and ministering to him, she came back and wrote verses 3 and 4, and they ended up as the last two verses that end up in most hymns. Like I said, there were actually seven verses uh, originally but there's four found in, in most hymnals and, and and she put them in as a reminder that Jesus's presence never leaves us even in our weakest moments when are we at our weakest on our deathbed now we could say we're at our weakest spiritually when we sin well the same is true he doesn't leave us in that either but he's talking about our physical weakness. And I don't know about you, but uh, that should be a great reminder of hope that brings peace. To know that even in our weakest moment, at our deathbed, He's with us. Now, why is that so comforting? Because some say the deathbed is the loneliest place on earth. And the reason why it's the loneliest place on earth is because no one's standing there. relate if you're standing at my deathbed you can't relate to what I'm going through because you haven't went through it because I know that because you're still alive and those who can relate they're already gone and so they say that the deathbed is one of the loneliest places on earth because no matter how many people surround you and how much they comf- try to comfort you and do all that, they they can't really relate to what you're going through. And, and so she visited this young man who was on his deathbed, and, and I don't know that this, but it, it sounds like she he may have even said something along those lines to her. And she comes back and she writes these verses three and four as a reminder that even in our weakest moments physically, God has not left us. Listen to these verses real quick. Jesus loves me, loves me still though I'm very weak and ill from his shining throne on high he comes to watch me where I lie. Now the original lyrics was when I die, not where I lie, when I die Now, listen to verse 4. He will stay close beside me all the way. If I love him when I die, he will take me home on high. And those are a reminder that even in our weakest moments physically, God is right there with us through Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 28? Now, I know we quote it as a part of the Great Commission, but it's true in every walk of life. Go ye therefore into all nations, disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Now, it's true that he goes with us when we are advancing the the gospel in the Great Commission. That's true, but he's with us always, even to the ends of the earth or to the end of this age, the church age. He's with us. That's what the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, it's quoting a verse in Deuteronomy that says, He will never leave you or forsake you. So even in that moment, when no one around you on your deathbed, when no one around you can relate, Jesus can, and he's right there with you. And she wrote these verses to remind the people who sing it. Now, I don't know about you, but that don't sound too much like something children relate to very well, but it sure does sound like something that our elderly people relate to real well. Probably something they think about a lot. And here, this words of this song, relating biblical truth as a reminder of what this truth is, and that is that even in your weakest moment, Jesus is right there with you. You're not alone. See, the deathbed, you feel alone. And it's a reminder you're not. He's right there with you. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves us as his church and as his children. And so this, this hymn, though we, we don't sing it a lot and we kind of relate it back to, relegate it to just children's singing, it's really full of truths for the child, for the adult, and for the senior adult that we would understand that that we have to become like little children ourselves in order to be saved and that our salvation isn't dependent on our own strength. If you're depending on a child's strength to get you somewhere, which you have to become like a child, and you're dependent on a child's strength, you're not getting very far because children have no strength. And so you have to be reminded that, no, it's not about your strength. It's always been about God's strength. And you have to become like that little child who depends upon and trusts in the strength of God to save you. That's what it teaches. And then it teaches us that, that uh, w- his death and what he did for us is what opens heaven's gates that allows us to come in anyway. It's not about what we do. It's always been about what he did. And if you don't get washed by the blood of Jesus, then you can't come in the gates. And then as a reminder that once you've been washed by the blood of Jesus, even in your weakest moment, when you're on your deathbed physically and you feel like no one else can relate, Jesus can. And he's with you and he will not leave you. He is in with you at that very moment. And because you've been washed by the blood, when you die, he will take you home on high. What an amazing theological truth discovered in this little hymn for children he does all of that because he loves us there was a young seminary student years ago who was really struggling in his faith as he was studying these theological truths that they teach you in seminary the little deeper stuff that you a lot of times don't really go into in, in regular church time he finally uh, had reached a boiling point, and he just stand up one day and proclaimed loudly, I don't believe in God anymore. And the professor was a little perplexed by that, that. It is a seminary, you know. And he said, Describe to me the God you don't believe in. To which this guy began to describe a God that was unloving, vengeful, and absent in the lives of people. And after he finished describing this God to this professor, the professor very simply said, I don't believe in that God either. The God I believe in is a God of love who demonstrated his love for us in Jesus while we were still sinners. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is a God of love, and he loves you. How do I know? It's not because the preacher said it. It's not because Susan and Anna Warner wrote it in a song and said it. It's because the Bible says it, and that's our authority.